Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Anna. This summer, we're doing a series of live Zoom conversations with the authors of new books that we love. The next one will be this Tuesday, July 14th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. It's with writers, podcasters, and best friends, Anne Friedman and Aminatou Sow. They're the hosts of Call Your Girlfriend, and their new book, Big Friendship, is all about building and sustaining friendships as a grown-up. That's something a lot of us could use some advice on. So I can't wait to ask them how they do it. There will be a link on our Facebook page. Again, that live conversation is Tuesday, July 14th at 4 Eastern, 1 Pacific. Today, we're sharing the first in this series of live conversations. I had this one a few weeks ago with writer Michael Arsenault. Michael is the New York Times bestselling author of the essay collection, I Can't Date Jesus. That book came out two years ago, and he was on the show talking with me not long after. Now he's got a new book called I Don't Want to Die Poor. It's about how he graduated from Howard University in 2007 with six figures in student loan debt. Then the Great Recession hit, and that debt has shaped his adulthood and the writing career he's built in the years since. With so many young people graduating into similar uncertainty right now, I figured it'd be a good time to catch up with Michael, especially because he's always a joy to talk with. So in front of a live digital audience, we hopped on Zoom. Check in with him, and he is joining us from his apartment in New York City. Michael, hello, and congratulations on your new book. So happy to be back. Thank you. Um, I don't recommend releasing a book during a pandemic, but it's a great opportunity all the same. We're grateful. Well, you know what? Here's here's something that we didn't get to do before. I didn't get to look at your face when I interviewed you before. I so this is a new opportunity that the pandemic has brought to us. Um, and a lot of these Zoom interviews that we've been doing on death, sex, and money, um, we don't do them live. So we get to cover up all the messy connection issues. So if we do have any messy connection issues and you're watching live, you you might see them. Um, Also, because this is live, please ask questions of Michael. We are watching the comments on this video on Facebook Live or on YouTube, or you can tweet us at DeathSexMoney. Michael, I want to start, you were one of my favorite people on Twitter just to watch. And over the weekend, you wrote, pandemics suck, but one thing I've appreciated is that in constantly harassing my mother about her whereabouts, I get to make her laugh a lot. Um, Tell me about how you and your family are doing during this time. How's it working? Um, Well, having your family in Houston, which has, you know, it's like once again, a hot spot is very terrifying. Um, Very much terrifying. I actually thought about going to Houston um, for a minute um, because I was kind of planning to go to LA anyway, but I'm glad I didn't. But I will say, you know, um, things are crazy, but everyone's all right. Um, You know, a few hiccups as previously written about, but we're okay. But (laughs) with regard to my mom, honestly, I talk to her so much now. And, you know, one thing that I thought might have been an actual issue, which I know how this will sound, but I also thought that, you know, the announcement about the TV adaptation of I Can't Date Jesus. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Um, thank you. You know, lift me in prayer because, you know, we got to get over the hump. But um, yeah, but honestly, once that came out, I knew we had to talk about it. Because and for people who don't know, basically, my mom is one of those folks that doesn't want you to tell our business. So, you know, a memoir plus a TV show kind of might not be Does great. Does that? <laughs> yeah. But honestly, she, she doesn't, she cares about me being happy. And yeah. she's been really supportive. And it's just been really nice to have honestly so you're giving her a call these days and saying like are you in public are you wearing a mask and then you're telling yeah. her jokes like my mom doesn't need me to be on her but 
you know, because she's a registered nurse, so she knows what to do. However, I don't trust humanity. So, and apparently what I've come to realize is that you can't really tell black people who survived Jim Crow anything. You can't mm-hmm. tell them what to do. I actually told my mom that and she just laughed at me. It was like, you're right. So I called her. <laughs> she's like, I'm at Walmart. I'm at Target. I'm at the grocery store. I'm like, why? You can you want to use my whatever? Can I? No, I'm going to be outside. I got my mask on. Okay. So yes, I'm hounding her every day. <laughs> she doesn't listen to me, but I, I've gotten her to at least always wear her gloves. Good, good. And you, you live alone where you are right I now? I live alone in the tiny apartment in Harlem that I cannot wait to flee. Um, what's isolation been like for you? What's it been like living alone? I am sadly, um, okay, so minus the, pen, the, the doomsday plot aspect, I'm actually quite <laughs> familiar with the condition of being contained in a small place you don't want to be in. And there, you yeah, and you can't have sex and do anything that you want to do. Yeah, I'm kind of used to some of that. So um, that said, I was actually this was a year I was supposed to escape this type of life. I was like, finally, I can go back outside because I am like, you know, I fell into writing. I am a I want to be Donahue, like you know. <laughs> it's not the best, but actually, I've kind of made it really work. I have my moments like everybody else, but I kind of keep the same. I keep a routine, so I get up in the. I unfortunately, I wake up at four o'clock in the morning now. Uh, no matter when I go to sleep. Um, I don't fight it. I try now to sleep around it. And then I try to figure out if I don't get enough sleep then when can I squeeze in enough sleep? It's just kind of, at least for me, making peace with the fact that I'm not really in control of the situation. All I can control is how I react to it. So I'm just Mm -hmm. trying to day by day, hour by hour, keep my own consistency. And so far it's been better than not. So you write a lot about money in your new book. But I want to, before we talk more about the book, I'm curious what you've observed about how your spending habits have changed while you've been in isolation or spending this time in isolation. What have you noticed? Um, okay, so I'm in the, um, <laughs> I'm in the position where my 2019, is, my 2020 is still better than my 2019. You know, I, I ended up being broke. I wasn't supposed to be broke last year. And, you know, the fragility of what much, very much of what I write about in the book, you know, happened to me. Um, and I planned around it, but life happens. I'm better now. I'm mostly just paying stuff off. You, this, this you'll like. Um, this morning, um, it, it happened because the check was late, but it's fine. But this morning, I paid off three of my three of the personal student loans that I write about so much that have ruined my life. You know, they were broken up by semester each year, whatever, yeah. but they've all added up. They've all impacted my credit because they hit me for like 19 loans when it's really one payment, whatever. I paid three of them off today. It you I did. Been paid in full on my student loans and actually two more because um, I am working a lot still, even though, you know, I try to get breaks when I can. I'm paying stuff off. You know, I'm trying to really just clear my debts um, as I transition ideally still into another place in life. But you know what? Um, a racist game show host with arguable cognitive decline as president. So I still have to see how the economy goes. So in the meanwhile, I'm just trying to pay stuff off. <laughs> so to okay, hang on. Um, sorry. <laughs> there was a lot in that answer. I, hang on. First, I want to tell you first, um, you know, it, it's, it's good to hear that you paid off your debts, but I'm, I want to know how that, what did it feel like to you when you were making those clicks this morning? Uh, I'm not always like outwardly emotional, which is not, a, again, not a good thing. We work on it, but I, you know, got teary a little bit in my eye, which is good enough. Um, hmm. That was my Mariah Carey moment. <laughs> <laughs> 
and it felt really nice. And then I sent my mom an email, and my mom reacted exactly the way I anticipated her reaction. Like, don't worry about that. But I, was, I wrote back, I'm not worried about that. But I just, I want to say it does feel good to do that. And then she sent me some emojis. Oh. Which were very encouraging. Oh, yes. My mom is, we're all evolving. She sent me a Beyonce gift the other day when I got wow. a subscription. She just, you know, this, this makes sense. Um, yeah. And she even said she wouldn't mind if I lived in Atlanta, which is a gay, gay, gay city. So um, look at all this. That's, so that's progress from her? That's what you're yeah. Saying. I mean, yeah. Like, you know, my mom always says I care too much about what she thinks. And mm-hmm. I stopped caring as much. And it just, I just love my mom. And yeah, she, and she knows her son got a mouth. So it's been nice. I know I, I, it's very, it's very TGIF, vintage 90. <laughs> um, were those three loans that you paid off, were they private? The private loans, yes. So the um, the all the one company, it's like I realized seven loans. Um, three of them are off. We're gonna work on knocking out two probably by the end of next month, and then there's like the two big. So they put me on a twelve year plan. So either way, I have to pay this off by like end of next year. But what is nice is that I'm using a lot of the money that's coming in while saving because again, I don't know how this economy is gonna go. Yeah, paying these off, um, yeah. little by little, just clearing everything up. Um, that's awesome, Michael. Yeah, that's awesome. That's I don't want to get like, you know, just in case I actually, you know, fall into the tax bracket I think I belong in. I don't want to carry all this baggage. It's just, you know, <laughs> you know how the real housewives, some of them transition and, you know, they got all their baggage. I just want to be clean and clear. So tell me more when you said 2019 was rougher than 2020 has been so far. Tell me, tell me more about that. Um, well, to actually, when I got um, the advance for this, it was better than what I got for I Can't A Jesus. I very much fall for that. Um, and so I had budgeted for that. I had also budgeted for like me moving to LA just for change of pace, lifestyle things. Then kind of long story short version, a job opportunity that I thought was happening, that I thought entailed certain things that I was going you know, out there for. It didn't work out. You spend money. Then mm-hmm. my book. Um, got delayed because I just couldn't handle the pressure. Other things were happening. You know, I, the way a lot of people right now are losing people suddenly and unmistakably to a lot of different things, including the grief or stress and attributed to these three pandemics and counting. I suffer some of those too. So it just kind of was a really volatile year for me. I don't wish that year on anyone, but I will say by the end of it, I was in the position that I was supposed to be in and while still sad, I just knew that the year was going to be, this year would be better. And it still is, even though I am washing my hands aggressively and I have a bottle of alcohol with me just in case I need to scratch my face and I don't want to catch it. Oh. But, you know, I'm one of those. I've, I've become my mother. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, cl- too. Um, that's one thing that I was struck by reading your book um, is it starts with uh, referencing this moment when I first became aware of your writing, when you had this New York Times op-ed called My Student Loan Serenity Prayer, and it's a beautiful piece of writing, and I feel like it captures so much that so many people are going through and then just was not present in the public conversation about how student loan debt affects people's adulthood and how they, um, you, you, you mentioned how Oprah was your commencement speaker and yeah. how- The only benefit of you. Right, late. Yes. <laughs> Um, and and then you you have this this the, the piece ends in the New York Times with this I've come to this place of peace with my student loan debt basically, and then you write in your book like actually that wasn't really a place of peace. Like t- tell me more about that. I was so naive. Um, 
So I, I um, a lot of the book, you know, I, I know the Morgan is like, you know, a person chasing their dreams, but you know, I'm very realistic and pragmatic. If, if you know, when you read the book, um, the book is essentially about the facade of like how social mobility in this country really works, and mm -hmm. how particularly people like me who come from working class poor backgrounds, um, not really giving the space necessary to like really climb up. And if you do, again, in my case, it took me basically $100,000 in debt for me to arguably have the basic, you know, perks that maybe somebody white middle class can get by virtue of not having to carry like the same baggage I do, you know? So mm -hmm. thought about that. And at the time, things were better. And then, you know, a lot of people in the gig economy recognized or you know, people owe you money when you have to pay this much a month. Like, that's the thing. I'm starting with a deficit. I'm paying over $1,000 a month in loans. It just impacts everything. So, you know, if somebody's late on a check or a check doesn't come or something happens or some budget is blown or blah, 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 it impacts me. It kicks me, you know, a few steps back. Um, mm -hmm. And I write about how one period where it just was many months and many months can derail people's years and it derailed years for me. Yeah. Well, let's talk back about when you first graduated from college in 2007 and yeah. before Lehman Brothers falls, but that was soon after the Great Recession happens. Media was falling already. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Things were starting to fall apart. It was before the big collapse. Um, and so what, when you've graduated, what did you what did you think was going to happen? Um, what initially was, what, what actually started happening is what I thought, I was going back and forth to New York, interviewing whatever would be my opening, be it, you know, a book publishing company, magazine, assistant, all types of, you know, whatever jobs I can get in. I was ready to take that. I knew you wouldn't get a lot of money, but I figured I could do X, Y, Z. But you know, a lot of those jobs were not given, like, well, I got a lot of polite no's as I do with the publishing. It's really hard to do a lot with polite no's. When it's polite nose, especially when they have kind of racist classes, elitist attachments to them. You know that in hindsight, but you might not know then. Mm -hmm. And when I do actually get a job offer, which would actually be a perfect job offer, the reality was it might have only lasted two months. I had just found out how much money I was going to have to pay in loans. At that point, it was like, what's $800? I did have some other job, like a contract gig, so I thought theoretically maybe this could work. But then I did the math and it wasn't. Um, and, you know, someone in the house, um, Kind of just reference like I'm sorry you weren't born rich and white, um, and influenced my choice. And overall, I thought it was the, the choice to make at the time, just based on the information I had. And so that meant, you know, a year and a half in Houston, exactly where I basically took out a bunch of money to escape. I ended up right back in the house, which mm -hmm. I'm grateful to have to, you know, be able to a place to lay my head. But if you know my house, it's, it's hard to go back to. Doesn't yeah. feel great. Um, and then when the recession stuff implodes, you're like, oh no, so this is, yeah. I was instantly getting pulled in different directions to like basically not even bother trying to even pursue writing, but I was just adamant about finding a way. So I had to humble myself and just suck it up and stick it out. And I had to do that more than once. Yeah. During that period, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to make it in media. You're mm -hmm. starting out. So you don't have this huge network of peers of people who are doing the same thing. Like what, where would you turn in those moments when you're like, is this worth it? Like, would you talk to anybody? Would you have anyone to talk to about that? I've always been really good about being a co-emailer. Um, the internet has always been my way of getting access to stuff that I wouldn't otherwise have access to because my mom didn't let me out of that house. Um, I'm on cable <laughs> television. So, you know, a lot of people I reached out to, uh, people like Danielle Smith, 
uh, Bomani Jones. Um, mm-hmm. They were actually very kind to me, gave me really advice. In fact, um, as I mentioned, I can date Jesus. Daniel Smith was the one who actually offered that job that I ended up not taking. Um, mm-hmm. How I, t- I took and then didn't, you know, it's, um, it happens. And so <laughs> they were really great, but yeah, I, I literally, you have. I have. I've always had to use the internet to kind of basically create a community in that regard. Because while I have my own friends and my own social groups, they're not of that world. So I use the internet to find ways to do it. And also, I used to blog during when that was a thing. Rest in peace to mm-hmm. Stunner Gordon's. So people actually find me that way, and I was able to build some relationships with folks. Um, yeah, people have been mostly kind. I do remember people that um, haven't been, but you know, mostly people were kind. And when you're trying to build like community and, and connections over the internet, like how much did you feel like you could be open about um, like the size of your student debt payment, for example, like, and how much you were worrying about money? Um, if you know me, I, it's not a day I haven't referenced my student loans and how they're the bane of my existence. But I mean, the, the extent to which I actually talked about how much it impacted me, I mean, honestly, I knew I wanted to write a broader examination of how student loan debt impacts people when I did that essay. That was me trying to, again, use my means of just kind of showing people I have vision for my life, even if you don't, um, career. Mm. Uh, but I didn't know I was, I didn't know loans impacted me even that heavily until I actually wrote it out. Um, I knew certain things would come out, but once actually writing it, mind you, it was an awful thing to write, especially because I was in a position I didn't think I'd be in. Mm-hmm. Um, it was cute. Um, but I didn't share that much because, you know, talking about money, it just makes you really uncomfortable. And also, I'll, you know, the fact that I keep referencing, but most people in media entertainment can't afford the sacrifices. So most people are usually like middle class or upper middle class or rich. And even being middle class and black, being middle class in America, actual middle class, because I think it's usually a joke. But, you know, what I mean, actual stability is a rarity. It's even rare for black uh, people. So that's a privilege. So sometimes it's hard to talk to folks about it who also might not really get it. Plus that might make other people uncomfortable. So a lot of point in the book was trying to like bring up something that makes me uncomfortable to the forefront because we need to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And when you think back on that time and where you are now and the sort of zigzags that it took to to build your career, like when you think about the the greatest moment of uncertainty and thinking like, is this going to come together? Like when at what point was that for you? Um, it, it depends. I guess um, as far back as like 2014, when, um, how can I put it? Um, some, yeah, I don't need to go into that, but it's basically like there were opportunities that probably would have really changed the trajectory of my career as I had planned that, you know, did not happen for reasons that were not of my control and that derailed my career. So I really had to do a blunt assessment. Um, and then even last year, when in spite of being a, becoming a New York Times bestselling author, you know, and announcements come, but like things have been official for a while, even just kind of the negotiations and also like it going longer than usual. A lot of uncertainty even last year and people were literally dying on me. Like the, my uncle Terry that I write about and I don't want to die poor, tells me to quit, quit bullshitting on the internet and go write TV, a uh, film um, <laughs> in his, his very particular way. Um, I questioned even last year, I had to really be like, is it, is, is, do you need to think about doing something else in spite of even this? Um, that was more temporary than the last time. You know, I do have a faith in myself. I, I eventually shake it off, 
But you know, um, the the fun. I gotta put. I don't mean it's an egotistical way. I very much think I'm a star, but I also think in a lot of ways there. I know plenty of people who are stars who never get to become stars because becoming a star, whatever you want to call that, or be really successful, is not necessarily contingent on talent. It's mm-hmm. about access, privilege, dumb luck, and yeah, it's a lot of things. So life continues to humble me. So I try to be humble about it. I hope that makes sense. But yeah, but I also love like hearing you talk about like your career and that sense of just like confidence and a clarity of purpose. Like I, I think about my own life and choosing to move to New York city. I was terrified and wasn't sure I was going to stay. And I had no student loan debt. My parents paid for school. So like to think about you continually, like taking this leap of faith saying like, I'm going to do this even when there's moments where it really looks like, you know, the ground was falling out from underneath you, you made it happen. I'm trying, you know, honestly, a lot of life is like the fact that, I mean, I also don't have anything really to fall back to. I will say, again, credit to my mom. She actually even got me to say out loud, like, I never really considered myself abused, even though I know the people have asked me, she used the word, never used the really word poor, actually resent, like even, because you think you're insulting your folk, but you're not. Like, no, my mom is amazing. My dad, flawed or not, I love him. He's still, you know, always, I had what we needed in Sussex, but you know, I did grow up without a lot of things. Um, and I realized how hood <laughs> a lot of my background is the more I talk to people. I mean, I knew that, but I, to the extent, like violent, I mean, in terms of the hood, but I can remember still like a roach, a cop, the cockroach crawling across my neck and how much it made me feel and how people made me feel about the clothes I had or certain things. And I don't know, my mom's faith in her, my mom's faith, I say all to say, even if I don't align with her faith, even if she doesn't necessarily understand that I have my own sense of God or purpose and I don't align, I really do admire people like her. I really do genuinely have an appreciation for people who are of faith. Because again, my mom does not care if I become rich. She does not care about TV, New York. She doesn't care about any of that. She generally doesn't. She's a true believer. If I can see somebody like that and see what the faith means in them, I might not necessarily find the faith the way they do, but I have needed to learn to find faith in myself because she actually called me out on that even recently. It's like, you're too hard on yourself and you don't see how much you've actually done. I'm really using this opportunity to take stock of like what I have done and actually not also speak the confidence that I always really had in myself. Otherwise, I wouldn't have kept going. I would have quit a long time ago. And when you were moving, when you were living back home in Houston after school and you were in your parents' house, just for for people who might be watching who are in that moment of life right now, who are like having to move back home or be in a space that they weren't expecting, um, opportunities that they thought would be available to them or not available to them. Yeah. Um, what were the ways in which, like, what did you learn about how to be a grown up in your house uh, where you were living with your parents when you're trying to start your career? Were there ways in which you lived in that house differently than before you'd gone to school? Um, let me try to say this how exactly right. Unfortunately, I was very adult as a child because of what I was exposed to, but I did not have the at least the freedom to act as an adult, even if I was more cognizant of things that I probably arguably should have mm-hmm. been. Arguably should have been. It was different this time in that now I actually have my car and it's well, at the first time I didn't have a car, but each, like I had more of a say, like, I'm going to go out and be fun. I was still respectful of certain things. So like, even if I came home really late, I'm very quiet. We have burglars, but you can't be too loud. It was really not just, I like kind of just show that I was still working. Now, granted, when you, for, uh, to paint a visual, it's what, 2007, eight, 
this big white Sony bio on your, this TV tray your mama doing, trying to type an essay or emailing people trying to find some work. Hoping, on a TV tray, that's his. Yes. <laughs> like, oh no, um, very much. I've, 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 I've written many articles on the TV tray. It's on that very TV tray. Um, yeah, and really, it's, it's humiliating. Or oh, like your Uncle Terry talking about, when are you going to go work in a building? What is this? And people are literally looking at you like, what are you doing? Um, it can be humiliating, but again, like, also you have to keep in mind sometimes, also writing is a very particular pursuit, but like whatever you're trying to do, you know you better than you. And in my case, I still actually did research. Like, yes, it was very implausible for me to do a lot of these things. But honestly, if you read, I feel like if you read me, you're like, oh, this he did his research. I know because con- people have condescended to me in publishing. Include, oh, actually, I'm gonna shut up. Um, <laughs> let me make sure I say this. Uh, yeah. Actually, no, there's a certain hashtag about black publishing and I support it, even though honestly, half of black adults don't have jobs right now. And, you know, we're fighting to survive. So if you have the disposable income beyond like giving the bail funds and all that stuff, please support black authors. Find one that pool, pay for Victoria. But what bothered me about that, this is a tangent. I saw who started this and I'm like, oh, I remember the you. You told me black people went by because they're too homophobic and white people didn't care what black people think. And vaguely the same thing to my age, not vaguely, pretty much the same thing to my agent to the point where I, I was embarrassed. Man, I'm never embarrassed because I don't let what white people think ever influence me, but I was embarrassed by that. I'm glad I'm saying this, especially in this medium, because I need people to know this. Um, sorry, I'm, but people, again, I really, all of my work has been about uplifting people who I don't think have been hurt because I know people like me are never in these spaces. So sorry if I went on a tangent, but I do not like how poor people, working class people, all this snottiness and elitism and not making space and like, particularly the black people in some of these spaces or anyone of color, even though I think it's a gussy of color people, but anyone not white, if you are in these spaces and you are basically perpetuating, not, and when I say they, not all white people, but you, you get it, but that. I get it. <laughs> what, is, what, what, what good are you for? You know what I mean? Like, what good are you for? So I do want people who are gonna be at home right now, you're probably gonna be feeling low. You know, if you have private loans, they're probably not giving you that much grace. It's already probably taking hits to your credit. All of these things will make you feel bad. You know what? Also, one th- again, if there's anything if you don't take from our book, or there's any of you, like, just for the fact that, like, don't be so hard on yourself the way I was. Mm-hmm. It is just not worth it. Don't be too hard on yourself. Just forgive yourself for things that you don't need to even forgive yourself for. I promise you that will save you so much grief in the long run. A lot of people have bad credit right now because the economy is imploded. This country is raggedy, whatever. Like, you'll get through that. Some, And if some of these companies are actually giving you grace, do it. If you have the means to actually pay down on the principal, do that. I'll stop talking. I'm sorry. but I just- <laughs> No, I, 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 I like what you said there because it makes me wonder. Like, I don't know if you still occasionally get calls from from the student loan companies. Are we good now? <laughs> good now. Good. Okay. So, so is like in a moment when you are feeling like that voice that is familiar of you being hard on yourself for having the debt that you have or having to make the payments that you have to make, what do you do now? You know, somewhere along the way when I stopped being so, well, my version of really religious, um, I really didn't replicate that faith in myself and 
I'm not all churchy, but I actually think I do believe in God. I think that's in the front of God in and of itself to not really have that much faith in you. God gave us discernment. Use it. I didn't use that. My, one of my really great friends, Nikisha, has literally told me in college, thumps me on the head and says, you always have done everything that you said that you're going to do. Why do you waste so much time acting like stuff won't happen? And, you know, things don't, like happen, that. Things don't happen on my schedule things, you, I, actually anything I've ever wanted has not happened on my schedule. And everything that I really, really, you know, have been passionate about, it's taken much longer than it used to. In a lot of ways, I didn't get as much money I deserve, et cetera, et cetera. However, I have proven myself each and every time, you know, God will and I survive this, we will pick a pandemic, but I'm still going to get all that stuff done too. It's really like, I, I just turned 30, I turned 36 in April. It's like, do I want to be 40 still like this? No, I don't want to be like this at 36. And if I was this chill at 26, much less 16, how much easier my, my stuff would have been? I would have been a better hoe in my 20s. Even in, <laughs> I didn't want to issue a pandemic. Ooh, all these things. Yeah, this is why that, pat, I realized recently, like, this is why Father Marty thought I might have been a priest. It's like, I need a little priest. I gotta watch that. So, <laughs> Is there part of you for somebody who has, like, demonstrated that when you're hard on yourself and you work really hard, you can make things happen? Like, is there part of you that gets a little nervous about, um, giving yourself more grace? Um, I need to give myself more grace, but I, I think I always, I always trip up on the realism or like, yeah, but something, something could happen. Yeah. But yeah, nothing is in our control. Nothing, I keep repeating this hopefully because I know it sucks to hear it. We're not as in control of our lives as we like to think. But I mean, again, more often than not, I just make everything happen. It'll happen. I think what's the struggle, yeah, it's just letting go of this like doubt that something else could go wrong. It's just letting it go. Even if something does go wrong, okay, you'll figure it out. You'll go around it. Something else will come, you know, whatever. It's just literally letting it go. I am, Mm -hmm. yeah, because I thought I was burning a hole through my neck from smoking too much weed two weeks ago, um, dealing with the stress. So I'm also trying to just like really go back to my Excel, shoot, shoot. This is my version of Zen. I mean, you write about the like the your sense of time. It's something that that kind of comes up a lot in your writing. Like you write at one point when you were an advice columnist for Grinder, you write in your book about um, advice of your advice to someone was like, "You're not in charge of how this happens. We're we're not in charge of the time, we, and we all develop in our own time." And then you also write at a different section of the book about the pressure you felt in your 30s to reach a certain point because this feels like a pivotal moment for either you're going to create more opportunities for yourself as you get older yeah. and you're earning potential or you're going to sort of not. Um, so I just, you know, at, at, we, when we talked about age the first time we talked, I remember <laughs> you had a little shock of a moment when you realized how old you'd become and now you're 36. So how do you think about time and how do you think about, um, yeah, I guess thinking about that moment, like that, that fork that you envision with your thirties, how are you thinking about that right now? I'm still the problem. So old. Um, I'm not even <laughs> old. It's like I'm just ridiculous. Um, it, it, my thirties aren't what I thought they would look like, but also didn't know I would go through two great recessions, hoping yeah. depression, and all all these like I didn't know all of that stuff that's happened. I only went by what I thought like life was at the time. I hopefully like for me I'm learning to just readjust 
your idea of what things should be based on actually how your life is going. If that may, hopefully that makes like sense. Uh, I just mean that based on all factors involved, how do I feel today? Am I happy? Do I feel mm-hmm. more secure? Do I worry about as much stuff? Do I still need to pay some people? Sure. Are they going to get paid? Yep. Probably this year. Cool. Will it be okay? Yes. Oh, wait, am I too stressed? Do I need to take a break? Yes. I'm going to put this down. It's just literally learning to take better care of yourself. Um, and just kind of committed to that. Um, but the thing about like the, I will say in the book, I admit my mistakes of sometimes allowing my financial position to think like maybe I don't have, um, I didn't necessarily deserve certain things. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I just pro- I just wasn't really ready for that. And that was just another excuse. And now I know not to do that, not to psych myself out. It was a mistake, it happens. But as far as like queer people in general, it's also realizing like, look, we are judging our lives by heteronormative standards without giving any of the benefits of heteronormativity in this world. So <laughs> why am I punishing myself that I'm not like this person who had literally, what, you dated at 15? Oh, now you're getting married, took you 15, 20 years? I literally just started. I haven't put like, you know, I'm still getting accosted in interviews, I say with love, about not blowing people enough. So I'm still like on my journey. You be on your journey, I'll be on mine. And I'll you know what? I'm not going to accost you about that in this interview, Michael. I'm going to let are? that go. I- I'm not going to. Oh. You, you, well, you know, this is uh, this is a myth. I don't want to dispel this. <laughs> like, look, I'm a selfish with it, but that doesn't mean I'm not like, I wouldn't do it or like great at it. Actually, you know, I could think of two people off the bat I would, but you know, maybe three. <laughs> Make it be three. Don't <laughs> <laughs> put that out there. Coming up, we take some questions from listeners, and Michael talks about how he's been reflecting on everything going on in the world. Just all these pandemics, I need to temper myself as much as possible, but I just had an immediate feeling and just something clicked like, wait, the anger that I feel, this resentment, this immediate back and forth, it stems from the fact in literally elementary, a little bit, definitely middle school and definitely high school, they've always been hovering us just like that. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Okay, I'm going to pivot right now to a question that came in. (laughs) To a question that came in from Facebook. This is from Lene, and she says, "What items or experiences, wants, not needs, will you always find a way to buy because you just got to have it or do it?" Oh, not to turn into the strategist, but (laughs) Visa makes these CBD drinks pomegranate water i'm not even like if i can just say it like this i'm not really a sparkling water type of bitch but they're lovely they help with focus mm. and just so i have a caffeine thing it's not good i love those things they're five dollars a pop i just ordered another case from whatever today and i didn't have a coupon code this time like the last week but you know what i deserve that. you paid full price yes what's it called uh, it's recess, the pomegranate hibiscus, the CBD drink. I love that. They're not paying me. They should. Do you put it in a glass with ice? How do you drink I it? I do. Um, yes, just because I don't trust cans anymore. <laughs> and I actually stopped eating last year. I just, I just living in New York, you see people, they're nasty. I'm like, mm-mm-mm, nope. So I'm not going on the subway again. Not disparage the subway, but I mean, well, I can disparage the subway. <laughs> Wait, you're done with the subway? That's oh, a bold choice. 
my mom told me to try go on. I was like, girl, if I lived in not girl, ma'am, if I lived <laughs> in Tokyo where they, you know, the Japanese respect, you know, cleanness a little bit more. Sorry, Americans, we need to do better. Um, no, I'm not getting on that. I am moving to Los Angeles still. I'm figuring that window out. Basically, by the end of flu season, you, I will not be here. Uh, I need to get a spacesuit and goggles for the flight. But oh, I'm out. Mm-mm. Uh huh. I love the way you look. I am so serious. I will have a spacesuit and goggles. <laughs> Maybe this was the Vandross t-shirt too. But yes. <laughs> and goggles. Okay, I've got another question for you. This is from Monique in Leeds, England. And she is asking, how have you learned to tune into what you're needing and taking time for yourself without burning out? These three pandemics will teach you, these people will kill you if you let them. So I have no problem now just turning my alerts off, closing my computer, it is hard for many of us to focus. Congratulations to all when they can do it. I give myself little blocks and then I don't do anything. Like I've, I've really worked hard and like physically harm myself. And again, I had a little bit of a skin. I'm like, oh, you're going back into old habits. Nope. Mm-hmm. So honestly, it's it sounds easier said than done, but actually it pretty much is. Do it. Like put it down, look away, turn off the news, look at, don't look at social media, give yourself a break. You'll feel better. And, and how do you do that when you're in your space by yourself? Like there's nobody else watching you, noticing, seeing your bad habits. Is well, it hard? It is, yeah, I'm alone, but like the phone never stops. And then mm-hmm. unfortunately, like, the truth is, if I didn't have a book to promote, please buy it on that poor. Um, it's, I love it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I wouldn't be on social media as much other than like skimming for the news, maybe seeing like if I need to listen to a bop, you know, look at cute men or friends, hey girl, like, and then go about my day. It's annoying. Like that's what I like about being in California. I'm on the internet less and I feel better. Mm-hmm. How much are you outside right now? Do you leave the apartment? Yeah, I kind of have no choice. I like have to take out trash and like I, so um, I now go on runs. Um, I love to run outside, but I just never did in New York. But I walk to Morningside Park. Um, it's way too much of a militarized police presence, but I digress. Um, I run up the steps. I run like little things like that. It makes me feel good. So then I can, you know, earn the cookie or empanada about afterwards um, or not because, you know, I'm trying to be healthy, but it's really calm. Like for me going outside and just giving myself a break and disconnecting, it's really, really helpful. So when you think about your health, I want to talk a little bit more. You mentioned your uncle Terry um, and he passed away last fall. Is that right? Yeah. Um, how do you think about just what was that like for you to lose him? Let's talk about him for a minute. Well, it, what was interesting is I didn't get to say goodbye. I didn't mm. know the cancer was so bad. I didn't know he was in such a bad state. It's really sad to continuously lose many black men that you know and love. Not so much to like poor habits. It's an unfair and unjust healthcare system. Um, we're celebrating Juneteenth this week. Um, to me, that holiday always speaks to the cruelty of American racism and white supremacy in general, particularly mm-hmm. the Texas size version. Mm-hmm. I can't think of anything more cruel than how Texas treats black people so often. Um, no, you know, beyond just, you know, there's Houston and there's the rest, but it's voter suppression. It's no investment in health care. It's all of these things that create the climate where like even people like me are prone to die. Like even now. I don't have that good union health care yet, but we're almost there. Um, 
But let's say, God forbid, I got contracted with COVID. Yeah, sure, I have insurance. Not the best insurance anymore based on the way Obamacare works. I'm more likely to die. All those things that I, we've been talking about might not matter. So I have to be extra careful while still wanting to be human because I am alone all the time. I do get lonely. I am used to being alone, but I'm also really human. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, I've just been taking casual cautious risk if anything I'm doing to like feel better mm-hmm. but it's not lost on me like when I think about my uncle Terry like my other uncles that you know it's easier for me to die for one reason or another if not from the you know a police officer on the wrong day this country and the many traps it sets for us up to essentially die mm-hmm. how old was your uncle Terry when he died um, you're going to have me do I'm in his 60s, I'm early 60s, um, okay. he's, he's younger than my dad. Um, I'm going to mess up the year, but my bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you won't mind. I said you're lower 60s. I ain't down. He'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry for that loss. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. We got a question from Julie and she's wondering, like you were just talking about the traps that, that this mm-hmm. country sets for black people. Um, how are you feeling in this moment as we... People are in the streets. Uh, there's a lot more sort of frank and honest conversation about how the experiences of Americans differ a lot based on how they are perceived and, and defined racially by others. I am, how are you feeling? I am bewildered and encouraged that after 400 years and three recent pandemics that white people have collectively decided, hey, we really should do something about racism. And I don't even mean that disparagingly, <laughs> but like it's kind of, you know, you know, day to day, basically I have to deal with all my grief and anger. Like I woke up this morning, 4 a.m. Oh wait, someone, I, who else got hurt? Who else got killed? Wait, we might have yeah. a war over there. What's going on? Like and literally within 60 seconds, your whole mood can be shrubbed. So there's that, which is why mm-hmm. it's important to look away if you can. But then, you know, um, I, 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 when I saw Vider, Texas, a sundown town, which you travel through if you're going between Texas, Louisiana, for a lot of people from Houston, like you really just one toe out of that, you know, me included. That is a place I never stopped. I wouldn't stop in the daytime. I won't stop now. In fact, when I saw that they had a Black Lives Matter, I joined in the course, like, don't go there. It's a trap. And <laughs> them doing a Black Lives Matter rally, like even me being able to break that news to my mom and show her uh-huh. the pictures. That is mind blowing. That is encouraging. Um, that said, I still am really obviously frustrated um, and angry. And yeah, I believe in the people in the streets. Um, but I would say I even went to a Brianna, a, a, a visual for Brianna Taylor recently, and personally, it reminded me of how like you could just feel the energy of the cops and them looking for a reason, them hovering over us. And I immediately remember, one, I've actually just been worried about protests about Corona, cause you know, mm-hmm. um, honestly, but, and I, but I admire everybody that goes out there and thank them. But being even at that visual was very triggering in that I realized like, I really have been treated like this all my life. Like I knew this, but like my high school that I described and I don't want to die poor as like people thought it was a prison. We were treated like prisoners. And mm-hmm. so all of those resources could have went to something else. It could have went to more counselors. You weren't really protecting people. And even when I talk about the violence in my home, we only called them once and we had to worry about something else going down. So you only called the police once and you had to worry about I don't really remember calling the police once. And then actually my I was yeah, he's very lucky because he my dad acted the way my dad acts, and that on another day I could have ended his life. So, you know, so I, I'm I'm a byproduct of how that police state and how they treat people. And 
don't even go into a peaceful visual and just feeling that intensity, it just makes you angry. I just, I'm, I'm angry, but I am encouraged by things that are happening. I'll say that. Yeah. Well, I heard you say two things there that, that this moment feels significant because it feels like it's the first time in 400 years that white people have lifted up their heads and said, maybe something's yeah. off here. <laughs> I feel like last week they were like, wait, y'all really don't get, they really don't get to vote either. They don't let them vote. They were serious. Something is happening. Um, <laughs> Why but I, so, so it's the white people. And then you also said, I think it's interesting that you, it was at that vigil that you had that realization. Oh, I have been feeling this my entire life, but I have always knew we treated, we were treated like prisoners. It was a joke. Like it was a, a, it was an ongoing thing, but I never really, it's one thing to articulate something, but I guess to be in the moment and then for you to like click, like, wait, the way they're hovering over you. I just, again, I've really been reflecting on a lot of things just, and mm -hmm. we were always treated like basically cattle sometimes. And some, you know, I'm thankful for the Black that had faith in me and pushed me and all these things. But it's not lost on me that, like, generally speaking, that school district regarded us as, like, inner city and be treated a certain way. And, you know, I'm very fortunate because it could have went another way, as it did for so many people that I literally all grew up around, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the anger, it, it, did, it did really kind of like dawn on me, like, just like, wow, this has been my entire life. And no matter where I, you know, up until now, you know, sudden change, you know, white people, again, shocking me. Um, I just assume that it will always be that way. And it still could, but I will say this is the first time I feel like, oh, wait, we might actually really have some things change. Mm -hmm. um, when you came up with the title of your book, I Don't Want to Die Poor, um, how long did you sort of linger on that? Oh, it was immediate. Yeah. I think it, I mean, once I actually came up with a name, I'm like, oh, I don't want to die poor. Like, yeah. I mean, cause I mean, it, it's, it's the simplicity. Like well, I can't date Jesus. That's based on a conversation with my mom. Like, girl, I can't date Jesus. What you want me to do? And I don't want to die poor. is very much just the sentiment of, yeah. Because for me, at least if I die poor, as I write in the thing, the way the laws are currently structured, like if I die right now, didn't have any money to leave my mom to pay off the remaining balance. She'd be on the hook for that of my private loans. You can't discharge that debt the way you can others. So that's, you know, that's, it kind of speaks to that. Yeah. One day I'll work out all these things about my titles going back to my mama, but as of now, um, she's great material. Um, that's <laughs> my dad to be honest, both of them. <laughs> Got to pimp this trauma out. That's the, that's, that's what capitalism taught me apparently. <laughs> um, so, so I like, when you said pimp that trauma out, like I, I want to talk to you about how you like both, like the, the thing that I think is so important about your writing is you don't oversimplify or flinch away from like the structural issues, um, whether it be economic class, racial, um, that have really shaped your experience in the world. Right. And you also talk about still the ways in which you can kind of get in this circle of like thinking about, am I doing the right thing and focusing so much on messing up in your own personal agency. I just want to make sure I'm joking when I say pimp out trauma, but I will say, you know, for me, it is cathartic and I've actually processed everything that I'm sharing with a greater purpose of hoping that it brings comfort to people who I personally felt may, like me, never had anything that they could read and pick up and feel like they're understood. I very uh -huh. much share things that I just feel like I have to consume myself for a greater purpose. 
Um, that said, I'm, when I say pimp as a trauma, I'm just aware of the fact that, yeah, certain people want to read certain things. But I will say you will be pimp for your trauma. I've actually had a tweet where I said to people, you know, a lot of folks are hitting us up to get our pain and trauma. That's all they want from black people. You don't have to do that. If you can afford not to do it, don't. But the reality is the, the media ecosystem is what it is. So when you have to be in those situations where you have to make a living, if you can afford to not do it, don't. If you choose to do it for necessity, you don't necessarily have to live up to whatever trope they want you to. You can do what you want to do and make it what you need to be. You can often flip the narrative on its head. Um, I see other writers sometimes even recently kind of taking this thing of like this kind of pious attitude of like, that's not what this is. That's blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but a lot of y'all not actually really working writers. You have other jobs. If you have to actually work in the media ecosystem, which is predominantly online media, you like many working Americans are overworked and underpaid. So you might have to really do this whether you want to or not. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to debase yourself or give in to any trope. You just need to be cognizant of the fact of what you're doing and why. So I write Mm -hmm. about everything that I'm comfortable with and I write about it my way, which again, if I had served I can't see Jesus, the reason why I say it so often, if I had served myself as the trauma porn people want me to be, oh, he's so pro-black, gay, look, country too, woo child, look at him, all that nonsense, the way they consume otherness, the way they want to take it. Yeah, I have a lot of dark sides, but I wrote about it the way I wanted to. I wrote about it the way white people need to write about it. I did that, I took less money, and now people are getting more money because of me. That's, you're, I'm business-minded, but with a sense of myself, but also realizing that this is going to help people after me so they don't have to deal with the BS that I've had to deal with. My life personally, professionally, is to use my voice and use my art to make it easier for other people. And all the myriad of things that I felt like I had to deal with. That's racism, that's classism, that's homophobia, that's queer antagonism, that's wanting to fight your pops, fighting off your mom. It's all those things that I write about. It's student loan people harassing you. It's just for me, I have a purpose. But I am realistic that I have to make a living because if not, the loan people will call me back. That's Michael Arsenault. His new book is I Don't Want to Die Poor. And his first book is I Can't Date Jesus. I highly recommend both of them. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. Thank you to the team at The Green Space who made this live conversation possible. Sachi Ezra, Cam Tompkins, Ricardo Fernandez, David McLean, and Jennifer Sendro. Annabelle Bacon produced this episode. The rest of the Death, Sex, and Money team is Katie Bishop, Afi Yellowduke, Emily Botin, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to our newsletter for behind-the-scenes updates from the team, weekly podcast recommendations, and stories from other listeners. That's at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. Michael told me that one thing he is enjoying in self-isolation is solo dance parties, and he's got a great playlist. Okay, so I love Kalani's Water, the Savage remix, obviously. I'm very obsessed with Chloe and Haley, now they can cuss. Uh, Megan Thee Stallion, a rapper named Light Skin Keisha. She's actually not light skin, I don't get it, but that is my shit. Like, literally smoking weed with, and so I can do it, you know, sober too, but... Sometimes I just get high and let her sing, and I feel closer to God. I don't know about everybody else, but I genuinely feel closer. It's not actually not joking. Like, it really calms me. Mm. Yeah, because I'm not going to church, but my mom doesn't approve of any of this. It should be all right. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.